Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I am so excited to share this episode with you. I'm not lying. After this fo- after this episode, I cried. Dr. John Deloney moved me in such a powerful way with his honesty and as a topic of conversation, no BS mental health. We discussed such realness and You know, after spending over 20 years in crisis response and leading students in higher education and finding real solutions on wellness journeys, John knew he wanted to help as many people as possible to heal from their past traumas and live whole connected lives. He now writes, speaks, and teaches on relationships, mental health, anxiety, and wellness. He also hosts the Dr. John Deloney Show, where he answers callers' questions about all the above and serves as co-host of The Ramsey Show where he helps unpack the psychology behind finances. I cannot tell you how honored I am to have such a powerhouse of a human being and someone, like I said before, hit certain notes in this episode as a man, as a father, as a therapist that like really got to the core of me. And I cried after the episode. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I'm so excited to share it with y'all. And before we get into it, here's a word from our sponsors at Green Chef. Hello, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist, sponsored by Green Chef, a certified meal kit company. Green Chef makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. As a parent, I hear so often from people saying, I don't have time. I don't have time to create awesome, healthy, well-balanced meals. Well, that's where Green Chef comes in. It helps elevate your everyday wellness with the number one meal kit for clean eating and discover new gut-friendly recipes each week. Green Chef delivers whole food for your whole body. And they are committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. They deliver everything you need to eat clean the easy way this new year and nourish your body with chef crafted nutritionist approved recipes packed with clean ingredients that support your healthy lifestyle and taste great too. You know, they look great. They smell great. Packaged well, right to your door. What an amazing, amazing service. So go to greenchef.com slash 60 dude and use the code 60 dude to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com slash 60 dude and use the code 60 dude. Don't miss out on this wonderful opportunity to get the number one meal kit for eating well. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Dude Therapist. We have Dr. John. We got John here. Someone who I don't know if you know who he is. You better know. You better start knowing who he is because I was in a Barnes and Nobles a couple of months ago and you had a little pamphlet of a book that was in like the self-help mental health um, section. And I could not stop finding and looking at your stuff. And it's, there's something about you, this energy as a, as a man, as a therapist, a mental health professional, you have this hard exterior and softness at the same time mixed together with like unbelievable knowledge. So I'm super excited to have you on and hopefully people get turned on to you and just don't stop because well, I appreciate that, man. That means. Hey, and all, by the way, if you want to know, I say this often as a joke, if you want a hype man, I'm always available to stand by you and cheer you <laughs> That's on, awesome, man. Uh, travel, you know, travel with you, whatever you want. I'll come I out to it, Nashville, dude. you know, just be like, you got this man. Um, I love it. I think but, I think uh, I would go to Pantera shows on Saturday night and then go to Sunday school and I think that's the the, the hard and soft all mixed in together. That's <laughs> no, why but it's I, really this beautiful thing. You have this very much straight at you way of knowledge and expressing it, and then at the same time 
this very soft way of saying it. Well, I, the, the joke with my buddies in the mental health space is I, when I took this job, I intentionally didn't get take the licensure exams here in Nashville so that um, I'm technically not licensed. Yeah. And so uh, I get to say what I'm thinking instead of um, I don't I, I don't I don't feel as bound by some of these other slower paths sometimes. And the media, I'm like being on a show, you just got to get to the point and yeah. you got to compress a lot. But um, yeah, some of my buddies are like, man, I wish I could say that. <laughs> so but sometimes I think the straight is the best way to tell you I love you is to be honest. Right. And yeah, pretty but, direct. And then I love that because my brand as a therapist is no BS with lots of compassion. Love so it, that's, dude. That's, that's how perfect. I run my practice. So perfect. maybe I, I, I do that and I shouldn't be, but you know, you should. I need glad to be. It, well, it was, uh, you know, the great Terry real was the one who was telling me that the, the, the word he used was cruel. And I loved that. He said to let somebody or let a couple sit in front of you as a counselor, wallow in what's going on. And you just keep asking, how does that feel? He said, that's cruel. Or yeah. if one partner's abusive to the other and you just, or go, well, tell me how that makes you feel. He said, mm -hmm. you're being cruel if you don't stop. If you don't say, you have to quit hurting people. Yeah. And so I, I took that to heart. I really believe that. I mean, it's cruel if you're not honest with, with your clients, with your people. I love that. I've never, I, I, I've never thought of it that way. I, I, I look at it very similarly. I don't use that word. But, yeah. you know, when it, I specialize in relationships and couples. That's what I do most times of, a, of my work. And sometimes people are not told reality or... And there's a nice, there's a way of saying it that's professional and not, hey, you're an abusive person, stop it. Yeah. Um, but there is a way of doing it that someone can actually hear you. And people need to, they're coming to get help. They're not there right. to just chit chat and have a good time, which is that's part right. of it, that's you know? Right. Yeah. But, um, what you know, so the first question I always really ask now that uh, I kind of hyped you up and talked about you, um, <laughs> can you introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners? And then the first question I always have is, what brought you to be Dr. John? How did you get there? What was that path that pushed you into mental health? Oh, years of of trauma, probably. Um, no, I um, I've spent the last twenty years, uh, give or take, um, almost twenty years it, as a dean of students and a professor. So I was I spent my whole career in academics and just working with people when the wheels had fallen off. Most people think of dean of students as like they are the guys, the men and women who are, you know, you, you can't bring drugs into the residence hall and stuff like that, which is part of that job. But also a big part of that job is. The mental health crisis and the psychiatric hospitalizations and telling parents that their kids have died and things like that. That's a big chunk of that job. And yeah. so that was most of it. And then I had a kind of a side gig working with the local police department and their crisis team doing death notifications and stuff and going into pretty gnarly situations. Um, and then I gave a speech here in Nashville and um, Dave Ramsey, the the radio guy, he his executive vice president was in the audience and she said, I'm going to hire that guy. And so I spent my whole career trying to avoid the internet and avoid any sort of media at all. I had no social media or anything. And now that's what pays all my bills. And so um, it was kind of a hard turn and it was, let's just take calls on the radio and talk to hurting people and you just do your thing and we'll take care of the rest. And it's been a pretty, pretty remarkable kind of freaky Right, ever since, man. Um, but going all the way back, my dad was a homicide detective and a hostage negotiator on the SWAT team growing up. And uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and, and her kind of religious ethos was women had no business going to get educated after high school. They had, mm -hmm. a, they had a role to play in the world. And so um, two big major things happened. One, growing up, I had a just kind of wired into your DNA. You know, when your dad does a thing, you think that's what everybody's dad does. And then you think that's just the way you're supposed to do life. Whenever there was something big, somebody had a bomb downtown or somebody was going to kill, like take their die by suicide, whatever the thing was going to happen. My dad always went in. He was always the guy going in when everybody's going out. And I just knew that at a young age, he'd put his bulletproof vest on and he'd have this little grin and he'd say, I'm going to go help some folks. And he'd head out the door. And then at 42, my mom took her first community college class. She got the courage to take her first community college class. My dad had been encouraging her for years. She finally did it. Next semester, took another class. Next semester, took another class. And at 57, she graduated with her PhD, got tenured at her university where she's a professor at 63. And this past summer, just finished her last summer teaching at Oxford. And so wow. like all that to say is I've got, uh, I grew up with a guy that when something was on fire, you go in. Mm -hmm. When everybody's running out, you go be a part of the solution there. And by the way, it's probably going to get you killed. And that's where you go. 
The second lesson I got was um, 2A is never underestimate the power of a determined, strong woman because I I married one too. And I was the third Dr. Deloney behind my mom and my wife. Um, But there's no such thing as too late. There's no such thing as I don't know. There's no such thing as that's going to be a hard journey um, because I've got too many of my of my parent my my parents too often took the hard path and it's made all the difference right mm. and so um ultimately i ended up on a trajectory where you show up with hurting people man that's your yeah. role in life and that's what you do well and learn how to do that really well and so i ended up with one phd and then i kind of went mad and uh i ended up with a second phd in counseling just simply trying to figure out what had happened to me mm-hmm. and um here we are now i'm a youtuber as my son says <laughs> <laughs> and are you still practicing at all in any state or you're just nope this is- nope i just take calls on the radio and take calls on podcasts and uh, travel around the country working with i work with people behind closed doors but it's in a strictly coaching capacity no, no for sure no, no therapy at all no and, and so interesting how that's been an avenue of so many people nowadays especially yeah. like post-covid when all the restrictions and the you know, back and forth of, can I work with this person? Can I work with this person? And it's so funny within the, the small circles that I'm connected to, whether it's through the podcast, colleagues, friends who are therapists, mental health professionals, whatever it might be, how hurtful the system can be. It's it, dude. It, it's uh, so I'm destructive watching, to people. I'm watching my beloved mental health system eat itself. Yep. The fact that there's not reciprocal agreements across every, that every state didn't say, whoa, we got to get care. And instead they double down especially Texas and New York for God's I mean, it's just been insane. And yeah. so what, what are people doing? Coaching. They're, they're going around, they're going to coaching and they're going to yeah. go around the circle. It's the system. And just because they need desperately need someone to sit across from them and say, I love you. And I see you, I'll mm-hmm. walk with you. And, um, you, you would know, as well as I do, 99% of our, of our, of people who would come sit with us don't know what an LCSW or an LPC or an LMFT. They just say, can you help me? I'm hurting. My marriage is falling mm-hmm. apart. I'm scared of my own house. And um, yeah, people are going around the system. And as all big bureaucracies do, man, they build themselves up and then they knock themselves over with their stupidity. So yeah, here we are. And you know, I have a few colleagues and even myself are sometimes consider giving, getting rid of those or just not renewing a licensure to do continued education, all these things. And it's even funny through the podcast. And I'm sure you get a lot of emails or messages. Can you help me? Can you work with me? You know, you have this great vibe or energy. The fact that people are searching um, and they can't find the classic sense or they're in a place where the system that is built in psychology today, whatever the referral system they're going through, they're not finding someone who they connect with and they go to YouTube, a podcast, social media and see someone who has a licensure, has had a licensure, has great knowledge and experience and an energy that they connect to. That's what therapy is supposed to be. Okay, right, and I think I, well, I, I actually think yeah, and, and I think as a as a whole, we've missed that. Yeah, and that study, those studies came out a few years ago. And it's been about ten or fifteen years now. And they came out that basically said any mo- the modality doesn't matter. Yeah, the degree doesn't matter. It's the yeah. relationship between the client and the therapist, right? That should have been the moment when we all looked at the Freudian nonsense, and and not and I'm not talking about his research and his kind of pioneering, but I'm talking about how you set up your counseling office. Yeah, that. You can't share yourself and you are supposed to sit in front of that person quasi robotic. And if you tell them about your life and if you interject with experience and you have any sort of two way relationship here, that that's some, that's an ethical violation. Yeah. And now we're finding that most mental health issues, emotional health issues derive from a body that's, that has recognized it is lonely. Yeah. It is completely alone. And you put them in a room with somebody who's designed to help them, and mm-hmm. you are trained to be amoral, Great like loneliness to be and isolation. unhuman. <laughs> and that brain is going, ah, again, right? Yeah. And um, we expect them to go, here's our advice, here's our wisdom, let me help you find it. And I think that what happens in this space is somebody listens to your podcast, and it's not real, but in a sense, they get to know you. They, yeah. get, to, they get to hear your heart, and they're like, I like that. I, I connect with that guy which is what I'm so desperate for our mental health colleagues to get is our patients need them way mm-hmm. as much, if not more than their, whatever so-called expertise they have. They need yeah. somebody to sit down across from them and say, I love you. And I hear you. How can I help? That's a totally different you know, proposition. 
it's a beautiful thing. And that outline that you said before of I love you, I see you, and I respect you. Yeah. Like there you go. That to me is like one of the like that really spoke to me. And it's something that you have said or I've heard you say in certain ways or or in other ways, uh, maybe not that exact way. Um, that is my mission. Like that's like my calling card I love it. in my heart. I love it. Right. That's why I, I really it. connect with you and, and what you do. And you know, you have, you know, the book of past, future, right? How to look at yourself and go to the future. And you're now coming out with this, or have come out with this idea of this amazing book on on anxiety. What pushed you to write this book compared to the other one? What what was the the force behind this one? Um, the, that first book, Own Your Past, Change Your Future, was really a uh I don't know how to say it other than it was like that record you had to write. And yeah. it was almost self-indulgent and almost I'm glad it was received as well as it was, but it was almost this thing. I had to get this out. Yeah. Um, this book was a little bit different. That little thin book you, you found in Barnes and Noble, um, which by the way, I didn't even know was in Barnes and Noble. Um, it, it was supposed to be nothing more than a business card. Really? Um, I was new to this whole media thing. I, I had zero social media presence, none. I wasn't even on it. Um, and so we, they asked me to write something that, we could hand out as a mm-hmm. business card and then it made some bestseller list somewhere. And then it just spun out and then counseling offices across the country started buying it by the case because it's so simple. It's just so yeah. simple and it's reductionistic, no question about it. And it's yeah. oversimplified, no question about it, but they were able to hand it. And so this last book initially was now I'm part of a machine. I worked for a publishing house and they said, we think your next book based on the data and the numbers and the what's going on in the world is another book about anxiety, but a big one. And I fought him on it. I didn't want to write on that. And halfway through, I realized, oh, you don't want to write about this because you're not living this out yourself. And so um, about a quarter, maybe to half the way, I I left my house. I checked myself into a hotel. And that book took on a totally different, um, from me telling you to me pulling up a bar stool next to you and saying, dude, me too, man. Let's figure this out. Um, I think we've created worlds that our bodies can't live in. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I had fallen prey to it myself. And so hey, this you know, book ended up being a passion project. Man. It's beautiful because one of the things that shifted my perspective on mental health and really pushed me to be more in this world and, and talking more and being more involved was I had a massive panic attack when my daughter was born about mm. four years ago. Yeah. And it shifted everything for me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the idea of awareness of self, listening to myself, paying attention and really tuning into my needs a lot more than I ever thought I had to before. What was that like for you? Like what has been your experiences that you were able to pull the bar stool next to us and write that book with, you know, your self involved? I think we go back to 2010, 11 and 12. Um, Growing up a cop's kid, there was days that my dad would go up to the grocery store with his ATM card and there was no money in the account but he had to get groceries for his babies, right? For his kids. And so I grew up with like a very money scarce world and a world where a public servant didn't have enough money to, and we didn't, I mean, we had one, my parents shared one car, like we didn't have a lot, um, but still didn't have money for groceries kind of thing. And so I said to myself at a young age, that will never happen to me. And um, I'm going to go make all the money. I'm going to get the right titles. I'm going to make sure I always have a seat at the table. And I got it, man. I was associate dean at a university. I was a, a professor. I, I did. I was living. My wife was this fancy research professor. I had a little boy, and I went stone mad. And what I did was I blew past every single signal my body was giving me. Um, or the best way I could describe it is I was in a boxing match and I just kept fighting through the bell. I never took that rest, that sixty second rest you need to take between rounds. And in the eighth round, dude, I got knocked out and I got so doubled over and wound up with anxiety i couldn't breathe mm. and um i almost blew it i almost blew the whole thing up and uh i have this one fateful moment when i was walking to work one day and by this time i was over so much at the university i just turned around and got in my car and drove three hours away to another city where i had a buddy who was a medical an md i just walked into his office and said dude i'm full i don't know what's wrong but i'm not okay and that started a new path i ended up taking a $70,000 household income pay cut. My wife and I mm-hmm. did, we moved, we did a bunch of transitions, but we started a path back to um, what does a well husband look like? Mm-hmm. And um, 
this this book, dude. Um, I joined this media ecosystem. My life has changed, you know, financially. My life has changed, like getting recognized in airport bathrooms, kind of thing. Like the whole thing. My whole life has changed. And then my body started saying, "Whoa, oh, we're going down that same path, man. We remember this." And um, I didn't want to see it because I want to do the next speaking gig and I want to be on the next show and I want to do the next thing. And my body was like, "I'm going to shut us down again." And that was right about halfway through this book. And I was, when I had that big awakening, my wife and I had an exchange in our basement that uh, was a shapeshifter for me. So um, that, that's the, that's the path. I've been there, dude. I've been wound up and I've also spent my whole career sitting in psych wards with young people or sitting across knee to kneecap with young people and their parents yeah. and their families trying to figure out what to do next after some pretty tough stuff. Yeah. So I, I love that story. Uh, you know, feeling feelings in my face right now that, real connection <laughs> to that hustle, that fight, that pushing through. Um, and I've worked in psych units as well and seeing people at their end or at such a low of despair or somewhere where most human beings have not reached on a daily day basis where it's just in your face. You see it every day was the reason I was hardened as a therapist to be able to show up to people more. So I love that you have that experience also because it's such a, a reality check for yourself to look at yourself as well. It's this beautiful mirror, uh, very scary and sad. It is, but it's, it, but it also, um, I think there's, you have to be careful because when you see a lot of it, I think our impulse is to say, okay, I'm not going to have that. And yeah. the, then you go to your, whatever culture you happen to be a part of. And they say, how do I not get that? How do I not end yeah. up in a psych board? How do I not lose everything? Yeah. And they go, well, you just have to get the right amount of money. You just have to get the right car and the right house and the right yeah. um, person to marry you. And yeah. then you don't get that. Mm -hmm. And then I go, I don't think that's what the research says, but okay, I'll follow you. I don't think that's what my Sunday school teacher told me, but all right, I'm in. And dude, then you make a full circle and you end up right yeah. <laughs> next to that person <laughs> in the psych ward, right? So um, I think, I don't think any of us are immune to it, right? You know, when I was working in the city, in New York City, uh, Metropolitan Hospital, shout out to the team there and uh, the wonderful work that they did and continue to do. Um, and it was such a diversity because it was on the cusp of the Upper East Side and Harlem. Like it was smack in the middle, East 96th Street. So it was really on the both. cusp. Of, yeah. And it was so interesting to see both in the same place, knowing yep. people's backgrounds, seeing that it could happen to anybody because people and humans suffer. And it was such an eye-opening experience. Of course, there were some hilarious, weird experiences that I've had there um, <laughs> yeah, of and camaraderie. And I remember the day that really shifted me, and I want to hear, hear your thoughts and, and how you deal with this in the work that you do, where I remember it was like uh, two weeks into my, my internship, and I was sitting with people, hearing their stories, a lot of suicidal ideations, really intense stuff. And my jaw was always on the floor. I could not experience and say and looking at my my supervisor who was totally okay with everything i said to her afterwards i'm like i said sally i said how do you deal with this she goes oh i'm so used to it by now i've been doing this for seven years mm -hmm. i went i can't be used to this this is not something i yeah. i want to give myself permission to be used to i need to take this seriously every time so how do you as a professional someone who takes these phone calls goes to these places, speaks across the country, writes unbelievable content and books and it not get something that's taken for granted or something that you get used to, so to speak. Uh, if this had, if this had happened to me 10 years ago, I would have already blown it up. Mm -hmm. um, I think being able to fall apart and have my wife not only still be there, but she crawled down in the pit with me. She gave up a, a really extraordinary career as a research professor to say, I said I do. And my marriage is more important than any other job title we're going to have. Mm. And to see the friends who showed up. So um, I know I'm not riding in this thing alone. And so I've been able to, and, and again, my research, my nerd world was sitting with those who'd made it and they had burned everything to the ground. And it was studying the mental health of doctors and attorneys and these fancy pastors, those who make it and yeah. their kids don't want to come see them either. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and they don't sleep through the night either. And their marriages are their roommates with their partners too. Right. And so um, I did, there's just a healthy space between it. It's, mm -hmm. it's, 
it's pretty neat. It's cool, but it's not who I am. Who I am is I'm a husband and who I am as a neighbor and who I am as a dad and who I am as a good friend. And, um, everything else is just kind of cool. It's pretty rad, but yeah. what I was put on earth, man, I I'm here to help people hear hard news with grace and then help mm-hmm. them figure out what to do next. And, um, I would do that if I worked here, I would do that if I worked at Burger King, right. I'd yeah. do that if I worked at, you know, back at a university. Yeah. I love so that. I think decoupling my, my identity is just not in this job. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It pays well. It's fun. And you get to meet a lot of neat people, but it's my identity is not in this job. My identity is in my, in my wife and my kids. I love that. And you know, you had a post that I want to connect to a question that came up after your story of when you were really, you know, struggling and at your end and went to your friend, you wrote by deciding every day to deal with your relationships, your personal environment, your health and healing and your mindset and emotions, you quit, you, you can quit running, stop fighting and stop hiding. And you were able to go with courage to a friend for someone who works with men like myself. And that's not a common thing to see someone, especially men to stop running and give in and open themselves to that vulnerability. How did you, how did you find that courage? Like what was able, how are you able to open up and say to your friend, I I can't, I need help. How, can you kind of give us some insight into that? Yeah, I, I yeah, there's, I got two insights to that. One is I was like, I was going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, just plain and simple. Um, I was flying a plane that I could no longer fly and I'm yeah. going to crash this plane. I'm going to take everybody that I love and care about with me. That's number one. There's just a, just a, it wasn't even a humility. It was okay. I'm over my head. The second mm-hmm. big one is actually something that's become more apparent to me in retrospect. And it's something I wish I could communicate to everybody. And I think as mental health professionals, I think as medical professionals, I think as billionaire business leaders, we don't do a good job of showing this side of our world. And that is this. In higher ed, as a sign, I'll use COVID as an example, because we haven't talked about that enough the last three years. (laughs) Um, I think I'm probably going to say it wrong, but I think it was King's College out of London that when COVID kicked off, they dropped the first model. And they said, we think, I'm going to make up a number here. I think 35 million people are going to die. For every scientist and epidemiologist and virologist and people who were working with machine learning across you know, systems, they all went inside science, the science back science laboratories. They all went game on. Cool. We have a data set and we're going to go from there. And within three weeks, it had been revised down to, we think, 12 million people are going to die. And then another college group got together and another group of scientists and all the time new data is coming in. So the whole goal originally of science is to be less wrong, to work together and to you go put your stuff out there. You let everybody peer review it and you let iron sharpen iron and then it gets changed a little bit more. And thank God. And so I have all, never had an ego about asking for something I don't know how to do. In fact, I've prided myself on, you know what I don't know anything about? Cars. But I got a buddy who does. My friend Gustavo knows everything about cars, like pathologically. I don't know anything about HVAC, but my friend John, he is the CEO of an HVAC company. My friend Todd works in finance. And so I have just grown my whole life has been, dude, I'm not the expert on anything but this tiny little sliver of what I know. Thank God I've got a whole bunch of other people in my life. And I think that's the academic training. Um, cause I worked with some of the best theologians on the planet and the best law professors on the planet. I don't know that stuff, but I can ask that guy. And I think the illusion outside of that world is what we see in media and politics, which is there is no backs. Once you say, we think 30 million people are going to die. You have to die on that Hill forever. And if you change your mind, you're stupid. You're a, you're a flip flopper. You're a whatever. And I think that makes its way into popular, popular culture. That becomes who we are. So you mm-hmm. have a group of men that don't know an answer. So they just watch some YouTube channel, some dude in the back of a car with 12 followers who's like, you know, the real story is this. And we go, eh, that's it. Because we don't have the courage to ask a friend because we've been told by our, by our leaders, if you don't know, you're stupid. If you don't know, you're a loser. Whereas the world I come from, if you don't know, dude, that's what your neighbor's for, man. Yeah. Um, and so I'm happy to not have all that crap in my head. I don't know about all those space and time and viruses. I don't know anything about those things. That's why I've got my friends that are experts. I'll just ask them. So I, for me, it was not, it was a matter of I'm about to die. I need to call somebody. And I was blessed to have 
a buddy who's a medical doctor. My joke <laughs> around my house is also one of my best friends was the assistant manager at Napa Auto Parts. And if I had called him, he would have been like, uh, I got like a 30 pack in the truck. If you want to come hang out, we can figure it out. You know what I mean? Like it would have been a very different route, but um, you gotta, you gotta know the right people to call. But I, I, I just, man, I, I implore all men take that ego, make your life about, I have a guy or I have, I have, I have a gal. I've got somebody I can reach out to who's an expert in a bunch of areas. Just takes the bricks out of your backpack, man. You don't have to carry all that around. Hmm. It was recently, it was funny. I take pride recently, in what I don't know. Oh, I love that. And then recently, my own therapist asked me to, to do that for something small. Like just ask your buddy. And my first reaction was, what do you mean? How could I do that? What's no. And then like, she saw my face and she went, you're probably thinking that you can't do that. Right. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, you know, you're a therapist and, and you help people tell people to ask other people. So why can't you? And I'm like, I know you're right. But my first initial reaction was run. Don't do that. And I'm not I mean, like therapy, that. Therapists, we, we all took a course on consultation and on yeah. how to ethically ask our colleagues, hey, man, dude, the number of times I, I've got a network of counselors, uh, mental health professionals across the country. And if I get a call like, hey, on my show, like so-and-so was sexually assaulted and they're autistic, I happen to know Dr. Michael Gomez, who is out at Brown University. He's an expert in autism and in childhood sexual abuse i know i got a guy i don't yeah. know the answer to that question but i yeah. got a guy and um i can call dr lynn jennings who knows about secondary trauma and childhood trauma and so i'm always on the phone with these experts and if you go back to the greats like dr phil and those those guys had a team of the best yeah. in the world because nobody knows all the answers this only scary people are the people who think they know the answers and they just start spouting stuff out and that's when you get yourself in trouble yeah 100 percent. i love that and so, you know, back to the the idea of this beautiful, you know, ability of connecting with your book and how how much it's it's part of you as much as it is for other people. Um, you know, there, there's something in there that's very, very, I feel, a spiritual thing. And I wanted to pick your brain about it. The idea sure. that in this day and age, we we don't believe in something bigger than ourselves, which then causes harm. What is the harm? What do you mean by connecting to something bigger? What does that mean practically? And and how does that really help us in a day-to-day life? Yeah, I, that was the dude. I uh so just for the listener, in 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 30 seconds or less, I just I think we anxiety, depression, I think our bodies are working pretty good. And for the last 150 years to maybe 200 years, we've operated under the idea that our bodies are somehow broken and medicine has to fix it. I tend to look at anxiety as, yeah, your body's just trying to get your attention. Let's figure out what it, it's an alarm, just trying to get your attention. And so if you follow that trail all the way down, if we have the most anxious society in human history and the most overfed, most connected, the most wealthiest, all those things, then we must have created an ecosystem that's setting everybody's alarms off. Let's just go dig into that. And so the idea is let's stop focusing on anxiety and trying to stop anxiety is trying to stop depression. Let's look at building a life where the alarms don't ring all the time. Like let's just reverse engineer this thing. And that led me to what are a series of choices we can make on a daily basis and a yearly basis and a monthly basis that can help us build this life. And that led me to the last choice, your question. And dude, I wrestled with that. Um, hard. And I finally got to the place I could leave that chapter out and the book will be fine. And I felt like I would be lying to myself and to everyone who read it. And so that last chapter is choose belief. Um, And that comes from a mixture of what I would call right-wing thinkers and very, very left-wing thinkers and philosophers and theologians. And now getting into more neuroscientists, here's the, the genesis is for all of human history, People have walked outside of their hut or their tent and they looked at the sky and said, please rain or my kids die. Mm -hmm. Every civilization in human history was tethered by a God or a series of gods that told them how to act, what to think, what to wear, what roles were, et cetera. And yes, of course, there's been abuses to that system throughout all of human history, of course, but there's been a bonding agent there. We all have a common belief in fill in the blank. 
in something bigger than us that we are in service to. Mm-hmm. And over the last 150 years, we have gotten really freaking arrogant because we solved for hunger. We just ship in food from Guatemala and from Ukraine and from wherever. We ship oil in from ga- from the Middle East in Texas on ships, ships built in China, designed in the U.S. Like, we've just gotten real arrogant. We've solved for water. We don't have any. It's no rain. We'll just pump it four miles out of the ground. So we've gotten very arrogant that we are the chief operating um, consultant in the world. And as a mental health guy, and you'll, you'll know what I mean here, all of our psychological theories all end on one note. That is self-actualization. When you finally transcend. And if we look around at what Jung was talking about, even what, what Freud was talking about, we've all self-actualized. We're here. And the self can't hold. It was never designed to hold up the universe. And we don't have a plan B. And so that the, the idea is you have to, you are wired, psychologically speaking, neurologically speaking, to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And so I say in the book, you have to choose belief. I'm a Christian guy. That's the belief system I choose. I don't prescribe one in the book. In fact, I talk about some of my closest friends who are academicians who are as atheist as the day is long. Our kids play together. They are great parents. They're some of my closest friends. And they believe in the birth and life and death and nature, the cyclical part of nature, but they believe they're a part of something bigger than themselves. I don't care what your thing is. You have to plug into something bigger. You have to take a knee in service to. And the moment you let go of thinking that the whole world rests on you, that's the day your body begins to heal. Your nervous system begins to go whoosh when you can lean into something else. And so that's the idea behind you have to choose belief. And I know that's unpopular on every it's unpopular with the faith communities because they want theirs to be the one I told them to go to. And it's unpopular with those who want to just keep hammering away at the scientific method. And it's unpopular with those that want to bang their heads on the self-actualization scale uh, just another hundred years. But as the great uh, David Foster Wallace says, everybody worships. We are beings designed to worship. And if you worship beauty, you'll never be pretty enough. And if you worship money, you'll never have enough. And if you worship life and time, you'll always be too wrinkly and it will be coming too fast. You have to worship in service to something bigger than yourself. That means you've got to take a knee before some God of some sort. I love that. You know, I'm an Orthodox Jew, so I I also connect with that. And uh, recently I read uh, Rain Wilson's book, Soul Boom, and he talks about I haven't read that, but I love rain. That's awesome. Yeah. And he talks about the idea of how um, God has become a four letter word. And how the idea of belief yes. and spirituality has been such a contradictory idea of just belief and connection to something bigger than yourself that he even said he wanted to pitch a TV show to all the media outlets and they turned him down. And he's like, do you not see what you are Posting, you're posting nudity and all these things that are not promoting connection. I'm saying let's make a show that we ask the hard questions about life and connect to something bigger than ourselves across all factions of the world. And you're telling me that that is controversial. And so that idea is so interesting that belief is something that we all have in some way or another. And I love that that's the way you end the six things that you set out for. what are some of the other ones that you find are so pivotal, not just to your book, but even to your life and anxiety? I know you have six of them, and the last one is belief. What are some of the other ones that you truly connect to that you like are involved mm. in that really speaks to you? I, I think I think the big one that's uh, I think it's it's common knowledge by now. I think we're all just staring around going, well, I don't know what to do um, is choose connection. I, I don't believe that there's any sort of mental or emotional well-being or mental or emotional health in isolation P- like full stop period um that's why i think all one-on-one therapy has to at some point end up back in the system the environment you go home to and you have to have a tribe um i even have had some great debates and arguments with some buddies behind closed doors who are neuroscience like dude your studies when you're studying isolated individuals are going to be off from the get-go because you're not you're not connecting with a well person because a person can only be fully 
integrated and well when they are seen and loved and therefore safe. And I'm talking about nervous system safe, not woo-woo safe. I'm talking about their body goes, okay, someone else is keeping watch, right? So choose connection, but we all know that, right? We know loneliness kills us. Cassio put it some awesome work there. We know loneliness is going to kill us. And so there's a million different ways to try to seek that out. Um, the one that has been the most challenging for me is choose freedom and not, and I don't mean the star spangled underwear kind of way. I mean, it was putting, connecting the neuroscience, like the, the science, the literature, a, a non-autonomous, a body that lacks autonomy, a, um, a person who is not in control of their own life will be anxious because that body recognizes that environment is not safe. Mm -hmm. Somebody else is driving the car of your life and it will ring your alarms. And when I started digging into what does safety mean, it was a strange moment that I was sitting in a room. It was me and Dave Ramsey of all people. And I was sitting in a room and I put the stock market of the last hundred years, like a graph of the stock market. And it, if you take a graph of prison populations and you inverse the divorce populations and you, in, and you add the mental health diagnostics, it lays on top of that map almost perfectly. Mm. And that's not causal at all, but it was a very interesting picture. We have borrowed ourselves into the deepest hole in human history. We owe $30 trillion as a country. And beneath that, we owe a trillion dollars in personal credit cards and $2 trillion in student loans. What does that mean? On the individual level, every day I wake up and Sally Mae tells me what I'm going to do that day. Toyota Motor Company tells you, you will go work this many hours today because I run your life now not you. Your mortgage company tells you, you have to go do this and this and this. Even if it's toxic, even if your boss is abusive, you will go do these things because I own you now. And if I look back on all of human history, that sort of servitude, that sort of slavery, that sort of indebtedness was used to capture people and trap people. And that is our way of life. That's our oxygen. You are nuts if you pay cash for a car. People ask you what's wrong with you. Why don't you just put that down and get a super nicer one? Um, and so I think the owing people money one, one step beneath that is our calendars, like the soccer coaches of our nine-year-old kids who tell us what we're going to do for the next 14 years worth of Saturdays and Sundays. Um, these little league schedules that run our, they run our homes because if our kid is not in travel ball at age four, he's not going to be a travel ball at age seven. If he's not in seven, he's not going to make the middle school team. And if he's not in the middle school team, he'll never get... And so we sacrifice the soul of our homes on the altars of dance recitals and violin lessons and all of these extrinsic markers that make us quasi feel good as parents, but that kill us. They mm. destroy us. And we get to our, our calendars get so tight. You miss, if you're five minutes late to one thing, the whole week falls over. And our bodies know that's not a safe way to live. Another one's about like, you know, the great Nidra Tweb and others who've written about boundaries and, and Dr. Cloud and those guys. If your mother-in-law is still telling you what you're going to do for the holidays, regardless of whether you can afford it, regardless of whether how exhausted your family unit is, your body's going to sound the anxiety alarms, man. And so I think it's looking back, and we could just keep going on, on clutter and chaos. Um, the link between anxiety and clutter in your home, it was a terrifying notion for me because I pride myself on all the books I have because look how smart I am. <laughs> and my body is constantly, as the great philosopher, Japanese philosopher Suzuki says, all your inanimate objects in your home are having a one-way conversation with you all day, every day. And your books are asking you, why, why, why are you so stupid? You're not going to read us anymore? Are you just done? Are you, are you just Mr. Smart now? Are you just going to say dumb? Is that what you're going to do? And then those clothes in your closet are like, uh, oh, you're just, you're just going to be fat now. That's it. You're just not going to work out anymore because you don't care. Is that it? Mm. Um, and the dishes in the sink are just going to say, oh, you're one of those husbands, huh? That just doesn't help his wife. You're just going to be a loser. He's going to take a rest. Is that what we're doing now? And it never shuts up. And it never shuts up. And so I think taking a look at a body designed for scarcity, our bodies are wired for millions of years of scarcity. And now we can buy everything with a click of a cell phone button. And it just shows up at our house. I think our bodies are drowning in stuff. And so those, like, that, that's just a couple of, like, if when I look at the book, who's running my life? Where am I not free? And those were some scary moments for me, man. It's like, well, I owe this and I, I get my self-worth by all the stuff I have and the guitars that I play. And I, 
you know, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. I have no boundaries. I say yes, because the world depends on me. And clearing those things away gives your body a chance to go, whew, we're safe now. Mm. And then the alarms quit ringing. And then my daughter wants to hug instead of hide because her dad's a nuclear reactor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And I, and I think as mental health professionals, we often miss the life part of it. And we want to get so quick to the diagnostic part and to the breathing exercises and to the meditation that we forget that it's really hard to not be anxious when all, when you owe $150,000 in student loans and your mother-in-law is running your life and your calendar's packed to the hilt and you have a suburban you can't afford Dude, 10 minutes of, of, you know, two-tone breathing is not, it's not going to, your body would be failing you if it let you sleep all the way. It would be failing you if it let you have deep, great sex with your wife. It would be failing you because it's trying to not die, right? And so I think it's going back and saying, all right, dude, let's just reimagine this ecosystem completely. So that's a couple mm-hmm. connection and freedom are a couple ones that kind of haunt me at the moment. You know, it's interesting, and I want to maybe take your take on it. I saw a video about um, pets and a dog that if you um, tell it to not protect its food, right, and they, like, show their teeth when you get too close, um, and you go, bad dog, and you keep telling it to not act the natural response, it doesn't mean that if they bite you, it's a good thing. I'm just saying to respect that boundary that a dog creates right? Showing teeth, get away, listen to me. If we condition it, it will lose its natural response to be able to tell someone that something is wrong. Hmm. How do we, like, we, like, we silence, what are, what are we doing that is silencing our natural response to listen to that? You said something's wrong if you're sleeping through the night, right? And your life is all in chaos. You're hmm. not, so why and what has been conditioning us to not pay attention or take action or what's convincing us that we're okay when we're not? Dude, our, 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 every breath we take is in a culture designed to either distract us or to make our next move easier. Mm-hmm. And neither of those things are bad. I love both of those. I love great TV. Dude, I'll spend my whole life at, at live comedy shows and concerts. I, I, I just love them. Um, our entire economy is built on distraction. Where can I get your attention to go? Mm-hmm. And it's built on convenience. And the end result of convenience is like, man, our bodies were designed to go catch food and go get it and pay a price for that. And now I just hit a button and it shows up in my house. And so everything is about quiet the alarms. And when you can numb out and distract your way through every single moment of your life, um, we have no capacity. We lose that skill set overnight on, hey, my body's trying to tell me that something's not okay. Mm-hmm. We just, uh, let's just take that pill. Let's go to sleep. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a brave new world all over again, man. Um, yeah. It's just ambient as the soma, right? So you can just, I just take this and go to sleep mm-hmm. instead of saying, hey, sleep is one of the core human functions. If my body is telling me it can't sleep and it knows that it goes, stone insane after four days of not sleeping it's trying to get my attention in a profound way what is it Mm -hmm. oh dude i need to talk to my wife i need to talk to my kids i need to quit this job and those are not like i I gotta sell these cars those are not prices we're willing to pay so we just shut off the we don't sleep we just go unconscious we take the pill and we go on to the next day Mm -hmm. and so i think we've created a culture that we just don't have to deal with we have to pay the piper until the very end yeah i think we become very robotic in those things, you know, my wife and I, we used to live in New York and we moved out to Vegas, to Nevada um, last year. And it's changed our lives astronomically. The idea of being in this moment, being still, being present, outdoors, all these wonderful things that I know to be so helpful. Um, but to actually live that way is something that I never thought was possible living in that hustle of New York lifestyle. And, and there's probably a learning curve to that. My my oh, buddy such a Ian, learning curve. Ian Simpkins, who's a he's a minister here in town. He says if busyness is your drug, rest mm-hmm. will feel like stress. Mm-hmm. Which I think is like when you move move to New York, there's going to be 18 months of. Am I, am I okay? Am I okay? yeah okay? Am I okay? And it's like yeah, we're just going on a hike. 
We're just going on a hike. Like you got to, you have to teach your body that we're okay now. Right. Because yeah. that kind of stillness meant you'd gotten fired in New York. Or that meant that you'd been left out in New York. Or that, that signal sent your body's like, Oh dude, we are at a mess now. We are lost now. No, now it means safe. Right. Yeah. And it's just teaching your body that. And we're not used to that idea. So for, for you know, the thing it's so interesting because what you're talking about is not something that's so extreme or ridiculous, but a lot of experts don't no, talk simple. that way. They talk about other things. And so I want to hear from your perspective. And you say this often is like a very common mantra that you talk about that you are worth being well. What are those steps? First of all, I love that because I think people don't believe that they are worth it or worthy of health and wellness. I think people say, oh, I don't deserve it. Someone else does. Who am I? So I want you, if you could talk about that as well as what are some steps that we can take in our day-to-day life, those choices um, in a more practical way that people can start being well and resetting or truly connecting to that alarm so that they can be Mm. a less anxious person. Uh, I think, I think it starts with what you talked about. I think it starts with, um, this understanding that, okay, I'm married and my marriage has been, and I'm I'm not my marriage personally, but I'm just a person USA marriage, um, has been dead for eight years. We have sex three times a year. Um, and we give each other Amazon gift cards for Christmas and he watches TV in that room and I watch TV in this room and whatever. By sitting back and realizing that is a choice that we are choosing to live like this. And we could make a different choice. We can continue to make this choice. And yes, it takes two. It does. But we could also choose to go wheels off. And we could choose to have adventures and reckless sex and crazy, whatever that may be. And yes, we have toddlers. I know. We can choose to work one extra shift every two weeks to pay for babies. We can figure something out. We can choose to leave New York and move to Kansas because we value time together, like you mentioned, over look at look at our zip code. Whatever those things happen to be, um, I think you have to ch- choose, decide, I can choose something different. And then you have to say, and I'm worth that choice. Mm. Most people have cashed out. This is what this is going to be. He's never going to change. She's never going to change. This is the way this is. And I'm not worth, it's not worth the fight. I'm not worth the fight. And man, if I can just grab people by the face in a gentle way and hold their cheeks and look them in the eye and say, you are worth that. I promise you are. It could be completely different. And it starts right now. The second thing is, is um, I wanted to call the book, You Can Change Everything. And it was my wife who told me, who was Dr. Deloney long before me. She's smarter than me, 10X, dude. And I don't say that like, oh, shucks. No, like for real. She's way much smarter than me. Um. But she said, John, that's too much. I said, what do you mean? You could change everything. And she goes, it's too much. I won't pick that book up. I can't even conceive changing everything because I can't conceive, the average person can't conceive getting up on time because of what they have to face that morning. And so I think the idea is once you decide you're worth being well, you have to understand you're choosing your heart. And have you heard that phrase? It's kind of become an internet eye-rolly thing, but it really resonates. Being 100 pounds overweight is really hard. It's hard in an airport. It's hard in your car. It's hard on your knees and your back. It's hard with intimacy. It's hard with your energy level. It's hard at work. It's hard. And losing 100 pounds is really hard. It's every day, probably for the rest of your life. So the path here is not one is easy and one's hard. The path is both of these things are hard. Living as roommates in your home is miserable and lonely. It's hard changing your marriage from the floor up, rebuilding something completely new. Cause what you had before has fallen and it's crashed to the ground. Building something new is hard. So the path forward is not one easy and one hard. The path forward is they're both hard and they happen one teeny tiny little step at a time. And then we get into the six daily choices. Like let's build a life worth living. Let's build a non-anxious life so that when the smoke clears, when your house is silent, that rare day that the alarm sounds in your kitchen, you know, I'm going to go look at that. I'm going to go check that out. Mm-hmm. But when that alarm's going all the time, 24-7, you just tune it out. You ignore it, and your house burns down around you. And so I think it's I think it's that's that linear path, right? I can choose something different. I'm worth that choice, and it feels overwhelming. So I'm just going to take one inch. I'm going to take one 
inch. I'm going to take another one the next day, another one the next day. I'm going to look up in three years. I'm going to have gone 10 miles. And now we're getting somewhere. You know, um, a lesson that I learned from my, from my amazing wife, um, when I had a birthday, a big birthday, she wrote out all the things that I accomplished within 10 years. Mm. And I was never able to see that for myself, all the little things and the big things within 10 years span of time. I think we forget how much we actually can do on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis for ourselves, for our circle, for our people. And we lose sight of that, the power that we actually have within our day to choose us, to choose wellness, to choose health, to choose family, to choose. And that idea of losing control, when we feel that we are so out of control, to tap into that daily choice, it gives us that control back because we actually are. And there are things that we're, I'm not changing politicals. I'm not doing anything. I can't change the politics. I can't change. I can't do anything about it. I can't do those things. And you have a post, actually, I love it, where you have like all the cross off. And the thing is, the only oh, thing well, you can actually change. You. <laughs> yeah. And it's just that, that yeah. ability to see that, you know, in a real life situation to cross, stop, just cross them all off, cross them all off and figure out what you have the power to control and take ownership of ownership of it. It's yours. That's a great therapist therapy practice. And I think more therapists need to do this too, especially those who are minded, you know, we were all taught in grad school that saying, um, you can't just spend all the time pulling somebody out of a river. You got to go upstream and find out why they keep getting shoved in. Right. We all yeah. were taught that in grad school. It's real easy to begin to make the people who sit with us when they're hurting our mission. They become our fuel and our jet engine, which means we're using them for our causes and our cases. And it's real easy to lose sight of what we're even doing. We're sitting down helping a hurting person. We're not saving an entire system. And um, interestingly, if enough people focused on the person sitting right in front of them, the system changes, the system rolls mm -hmm. over or burns itself to the ground and starts over again. But um, it would be a real interesting exercise for therapists to write down, what are the things that drive you the most crazy? My, my, uh, one of my supervisors was fond of saying when I would ask like, why are you still doing this? She only worked with sexually abused kids. She'd always say, I will keep doing this until people stop sexually abusing children. Hmm. And so it was this, um, she didn't say, I'm going to go get a shotgun and just start shooting people. She said, I'm going to keep sitting with these kids. I'm going to keep sitting with these kids. And I'm going to keep testifying in court. I'm going to keep doing these things as, as I'm going to play my part. But if you were to map out on a piece of paper, I'm about this and about this and about this and about the climate, about the economy and about the politics. All right. What can you actually control? Can you do anything there? You get one vote. Are you going to take that one vote? Cool. All right. I'm going to mark a line through that. Can you do anything about inflation at all? Anything? Because post, you don't... It, inflation doesn't go down the more posts you make right or the more the the angrier you get it's not like an inverse thermometer right it didn't go down like oh good we got a, a pissed off enough country inflation has come down that's not how that works in fact you buy more stupid crap and you make the whole problem worse so i'm gonna cross that off the list it, it's not even anytime somebody starts to talk about inflation i'm gonna end the conversation because i play no part in that zero part in that what can i can't what can i control i'm paying my credit cards off so that when inflation goes up, it's annoying. It's not, are we going to eat or pay the electric bill? Mm -hmm. And that sounds privileged, I know. It's not. It's 15 years of driving a $3,000 car. It's 15 years of driving a $1,700 car, even though I was making a bunch of money because my wife and I said, we will not be owned by anybody anymore, ever yeah. again, ever again. And it's just making those tiny little changes my friend George Campbell always is saying um, people overestimate what they can do in a day and they underestimate what they can do in a decade. And I think there's some great wisdom there. I'm always like, dude, today I'm going to work out, run 40 miles, do this, write a book. And, and then I get to the end of the day and I'm just like, hey, I want to watch TV. And um, but then, like you said, I, I think that's an, a, a practice. I'm going to I'm going to sit down and do that. Like, what have you done in the last 10 years? I bet it would surprise me. Like, wow, that's been a pretty wild 10 years. That, that'd be a neat exercise. Yeah. And it wasn't me. My wife did it. And I went, thank you. Like, I really, I truly felt so much gratitude for her because I was That's in beautiful. the weeds of my yeah. own, my own head of what have I done? You know, what, am, what, like, what am mm -hmm. I doing? And it was a very beautiful process, even as small 
which was huge, getting married or having a kid, you know, like that was on the list, you know, like those things that we take for granted or are just a part of our progression of life um, was something that was on there. You know, John, I really want to thank you. I think, you know, I have a lot of people on the show that are experts and wonderful human beings. And I just, the reason why I had to ask you to be on the show was your energy and the power that you, you, you give to so many people of being honest and real. And this was very, uh, not just eye-opening, but very therapeutic to listen to things that I know are true, but to hear it from your tone and your voice and your knowledge is something that I cannot wait to share with listeners. So I want to give the opportunity, of course, everything about you is going to be in the show notes, um, you know, how to access you, your show, your Instagram, all those wonderful things. But, you know, what are some things that you would like to leave off for people who might be listening, as well as a question I'm starting to ask with you, what is something that you are currently dealing with or working on for yourself? Mm, good question. Um, oh, I'll backtrack and start with that one. So it was about, I don't know, probably three months ago. So let's be super clear. Can I, can I just like lay this all out in an honest, straightforward yeah. way? Like no BS, just straightforward. Um, I'm coming off the heels of a number one bestselling book in the country coming off a year financially that not rich at all, but coming off a year that me and my wife, our family tree could never have imagined. Mm. And I'm coming off of what I is it, in pre-sale right now, but as a book that's is breaking all the records in the building. And I sat with my trauma counselor about three months ago and she could make a fist and to put it in my chest and to say the words, I love this guy. And Eli, I couldn't do it. I couldn't say those words. And I, I felt silly. And I was, she was like, do it. And I was like, ah, I I... and she said, that's where we begin. And this is a woman who's played a significant role in some like transformational healing. But going back to what my buddy Sal Stefano, he's with the Mind Pump guys who are just awesome. If you haven't had them on your show, he's amazing. But um, he told me once when I was visiting him, he said, John, you cannot hate your body into better shape. You can't hate your body into better health. Most people are at the gym because they hate the way they look. They hate their bodies. And, and that is a recipe for yo-yos. And it's a recipe for spikes and shame and quitting. He said, if you wake up every day and you're like, dude, I love this guy so much. I'm going to go honor him at the gym for an hour. Now you're getting into something powerful and sustainable sustainable and so quite honestly i bought into the lie that um once i crossed a certain financial threshold once i crossed a certain fame threshold i bought it i bought it man i bought it and it's a, it's not true it's a lie and so the thing i'm working on the personal thing is being at peace with the guy i see in the mirror and truly coming around and saying i like that guy and that guy can stop trying to perform for everybody and sing and dance for everybody. And paradoxically, it's allowing me to be much better at my singing and dancing, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm not doing it. Will you love me? Will you love me? I'm doing it from a place of peace. And I think I'm now able to, to serve you, right? So that's, that's my work right now is just trying to figure out, is this guy worth being loved? Which sounds so, so insane. Um, what was the other question? Oh, um, what I want to leave people with? Oh, man, um, if you're a mental health professional, start honoring your clients with giving of yourself in a session. Stop hiding behind the robotic nature of what we've done to our profession. That doesn't mean make your clients about you. And that doesn't mean spend your whole time telling stories from your life. That's not the point. But tell people that you're good, happy to see them and tell people that um, I hate that that happened. I'm so sorry. And that should not have happened to you. Say those words, say those, be with people, not don't be at people. Um, and then I think the bigger picture is, I don't care who you are, I don't care how much money you have or you don't have. I say this all the time. You're worth the fight. You're worth the fight. You're worth making different choices. Even if those choices are unapproved or not approved by your in-laws or your mother-in-law or your friends or your cousins, I don't care. You're worth the fight. You're worth being well. And let's start there. Start making mm. some different choices. 
Thank you so much, John. I appreciate all the work you're doing. I know you have a very busy schedule, so I appreciate that you uh, have the time for this. And uh, really, yeah, I'm grateful uh, for I'm grateful for your hospitality, man. I appreciate it. I I can't wait to to see what else. I can't wait to see what that list looks like. Um, and uh, maybe you'll post it on social media, and uh, we get to all see the the power that it is about the choices. No, man. I'll, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm trying. I like to, I like to post on social media when I screw up, not the good stuff. Yeah, good okay, stuff. Fine, is, fine. Is be that way for me, but be that way, man. Be that way. Uh, but again, I appreciate. <laughs> hey, you man, a I'm lot really and, grateful for. Uh, yeah, thanks for opening up your house for me. I, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for opening your heart. I appreciate it. Okay, so I'll speak to you soon, man. Okay. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Dude Therapist Season 5. Can you believe it? I can't. What a journey. Thanks so much for tuning in. Whether it's your first episode you've listened to or you are been a follower since the beginning or just trying to catch up, I appreciate you. Thanks so much for, for really jumping in on this awesome opportunity and learning experience. You know, if you have any questions, ask them. If you have thoughts, say them. I didn't finish a thought or you have more, more ideas of what you would like to hear, just let me know. The door is open, so to speak. So please walk right in. Tell me what you think. Again, thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. And hope that you tune in next week. <laughs>